Well, amen. Are you pumped up and ready to go? Thank you. That's awesome. I was ready to go, and then I was not ready to go, and then I was ready to go again. So sometimes that's the way it goes. But I don't know about you, but I was thinking about that video, and like, man, New Year's Day seems like a long time ago. Anybody else? Like, can you believe how quickly January just flew by? And I know we say this type of thing all the time, but if my math is correct, we're 10% in to 2023, like 36 days, 365 days. I checked it twice. That's pretty close to 10%. And so as we steamroll through 2023, we wanted to start the year with a series titled Kingdom First. And how can we, as the people of God, make sure we are seeking first the kingdom of God? What are the things that we can do that put God's kingdom first in our lives? And one of them, and and what we've really been focusing on, is, is being rock solid on what we might call the elementary principles, the things that are foundational to our faith. And so we've been in a series that has been looking at Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, and with this idea, how can we put the kingdom of God first? And so we saw that, and we kind of contextualized it in regards to some relationships that are really important to us. Uh, First being our relationship with God, that back on January 15th, when we started this whole thing off, we looked at repentance and faith in God. And this comes right out of Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, is these elementary principles that we have to be certain of, solid in, as we move forward in our faith and and progress and move towards maturity. We have to turn from our old way of doing things. That's repentance. We put our faith in God and in His way of doing things. We say we're going to follow Jesus with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we had the bottom line that week that Jesus is either Lord of all or He isn't Lord at all that we have to make a decision, and that that decision impacts every aspect of our lives, not just an hour on Sunday morning or a few minutes each day, but that He is Lord of every part of our lives. Then in the second week, we move to our relationships with others, our relationships with other believers, our relationships with the world around us. We talked about baptism and commissioning that are critically important because they describe and, and make us accountable and declare publicly what Jesus has communicated to us privately, that when we choose to be baptized, we're saying, Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life, and I intend to follow him every day of my life. And when we choose to be commissioned, which was very frequently done in the Old Old Testament and in the New Testament, when we go on record and say, I have a mission field, I have work that God has called me to do, and I'm asking the church, the body, the other believers to come around me and to pray for me and lay hands upon me and send me out, to do the work that God has called me to do. We see that pattern in Scripture. And these are powerful, powerful experiences in the Christian life. And so before we move on from there and and from our personal mission fields, I want to make sure you understand that there are some really pivotal opportunities that you have in the coming days and weeks to take the next step. This Friday and Saturday, we have our 24 hours of prayer. It begins at 5 p.m. on Friday. It goes to 5 p.m. on Saturday. I would love it if every single person that calls Linwood Church their church home, whether you're here in person, whether you're joining us online, you can sign up for a half hour or an hour or longer. We have people that do three, four, five hours. I'm waiting for the day that somebody just brings a sleeping bag and pulls a little, you know, all-nighter praying before the Lord. I might do that one of these days because it just won't get out of my head. But you sign up for an hour or two or half hour. We have resources that are available to you here. And and you spend time praying. You could pray about your personal mission field. You could pray for our missions partners. You could pray for the needs in our congregation. You could pray for the needs that you know about. But come and pray. 
that's the most important thing. You sign up, there's a table right out in the middle of the lobby. You can sign up, you can sign up online. If you're joining us online, we have people that are signing up and praying for specific times all over the world. It's amazing how this is, is growing and uh, we want it to continue to grow. Then at the end of the month on February 25th, we're gonna have a night of worship and commissioning. And it's been cool to hear groups of people and, and various ministries that are saying, we want to be commissioned. We want to be commissioned for the work that God has called us and individuals that want to be commissioned to their neighborhood or to their workplace or to some area of their life where God has given them a burden and given them a mission to fulfill. And so I want you to come to the night of worship and commissioning, whether you want to be commissioned or not, because the body needs to come together and sing the praises of God together and pray for the people that God is, is calling into specific mission fields. And then last but certainly not least, we have one person that has come forward that wants to be baptized on March 12th. So we're going to be having baptism and celebrating baptism on March 12th. And so if, if the Holy Spirit just keeps nudging you in that direction and you've never been baptized as an adult and you would like to participate in baptism and make a public profession of your faith, then March 12th is a great opportunity. It's not the only opportunity. I tell people all the time, I'll fill that tank every single week. I don't mind paying that water bill, right? Because anytime somebody wants to make a public profession of their faith, we're going to fill the tank and we're going to celebrate that. And so if you would like to be baptized on March 12th or any other time, let us know. We would love to celebrate that with you. Now, last week, we moved from these vertical and horizontal relationships to the future, and we talked about the resurrection of the dead and the coming judgment and what Scripture teaches us about that, and particularly the hope that is available to us today because of what Jesus has promised will be coming eventually. And there is tremendous hope for us in the resurrection of the dead and in the coming judgment if we are in Christ. But it highlights the importance of that decision. And our bottom line last week was that Christ alone is the cornerstone. He is the only thing upon which we can stand in the final judgment and know that we will stand for eternity and be with God, with him for eternity. So we must build our lives on that cornerstone. So today we finish this series with a message titled, Faithful and fruitful. Faithful and fruitful. We're going to be looking at the next passage of Scripture. We were sort of camped out and Hebrews 6, 1 through 3 was our launching pad uh, for the last three weeks. Today we're going to move to the next section, to Hebrews 6, verses 4 through uh, probably about 11 or 12. It's on page 1867. If you've got one of these blue pew Bibles uh, or they're available in the seats in front of you, you can turn to page 1867. We'll be looking at that passage in depth. Uh, if you don't have one of those Bibles, you're joining us online, you want to turn to Hebrews, it's towards the back. If you've read ahead or if you're familiar with this passage, you're already leaning in. Gosh, what's he going to say about Hebrews 6, 4 through 6? Like that is one of those passages that if you know your Bibles and you know some of the more controversial or challenging scriptures, you know that Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 might be at the top of the list or might be at the top of most people's list. It's become a theological battleground for different doctrines and ideologies. And if you come from a certain persuasion, you interpret it a certain way. And if you come from a different persuasion, theological persuasion, you might interpret it in a different way. And I was intrigued to learn that as I did more commentary work this week than I normally do, because I really wanted to see this from multiple angles and really understand this, I picked up a commentary by a very well-known Everybody in the room would know this Christian author. And I wanted to see what he had to say about Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. And when I got to it, he had skipped it completely. <laughs> and I thought, okay, God, are you telling me I should skip it completely? I don't think so. I don't think so. And here's why. 
Here's why I couldn't just move on or do something else, even though I had some other really good ideas. It's because as a pastor, I've seen this passage misinterpreted and misapplied by many people over the years, perhaps as much or more so than any passage in the Bible. And part of the challenge in this passage comes in just the translation of it, that there are multiple ways that you can translate this that are all grammatically correct from the original Greek language, but they say and mean different things or emphasize different things. And so I want to read the passage, and I think you'll see why it's caused such a fuss. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. So now, perhaps you can see why. You can see why this has been disconcerting to people and why I, like other pastors, have encountered deeply concerned people who have misread this passage and convinced themselves or been convinced by somebody else or been convinced by our enemy Satan that they've committed some unpardonable, unredeemable, unrepentable sin and are now hopelessly lost. And so while what I don't want to do today is, is give a professed but not born-again believer false assurance, what I really don't want to do is cause some true believer to stumble here on this passage and miss God's best. Because typically what they've done is they've kind of plucked this passage out of its broader context and they focus just on these three verses. And you have to view it in the broader context. You have to see all that it says. Because if you just look at verses four through six, it brings up some really interesting questions, right? Like, are verses four and five talking about true believers, or are they talking about people that maybe are just convinced of spiritual truth but not committed? Like they haven't truly given their lives to Christ. Or can genuine believers lose their salvation? That's one that I get often in regards to this passage. And if genuine believers can lose their salvation, are they forever lost? If they do, is there no way back? And is this describing maybe some hypothetical possibility that's not an actual possibility? Some commentaries land on that. Others focus on the Jewish audience, that this is a book. The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish converts. They had grown up as Jews, and now they had come to faith in Christ. And so he's, the author is saying to that group of people, if you reject Christ now and go back to Judaism, after all that you've experienced with Christ, then there's really no way to bring you back to repentance. That's one. Or is it describing those who participated in the Christian community but never really experienced genuine salvation? There's, there's all kinds of questions that come around this. And as I was digging through the commentaries and I was building sort of a point by point, it occurred to me this is probably just going to put 95% of the people to sleep. And they're going to weave more confused than when they got here. So I was wrestling with this and I was praying, God, what do you want to say to your people through this passage today? Not just to those that are troubled by this passage, but to the broader audience. How can we learn and grow, and how can we respond in faith to the Word of God as we see it here? And so I got up, and I went for a walk, and I do this sometimes when I get stuck. It just gives me kind of a break in the action. I went for a walk. I was praying. I came back, and the next words that I read were from a commentary by Warren Wiersbe, and he said, we must always interpret the obscure by the obvious. This passage is fairly obscure. It's difficult to translate. And taken out of context, 
It has all kinds of spiritual landmines scattered around it. So we don't, um, we don't interpret the obscure. If we don't interpret the obscure by the obvious, we run the risk of interpreting the obvious through the obscure. And so if you look at the screen, you see an image that has been blurred. It's very obscure. And if we take this passage, this passage, and we take it out of context, and we try to view all of God and all of faith and all of the Word of God through that obscure lens, even the most crystal clear passages can become fuzzy. But if we instead take the obvious and we apply it to a passage like this, this Hebrew 6 passage, everything becomes clearer. And so we see that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, everlasting life. That becomes crystal clear. That becomes the lens through which we look at the more obscure passages. In fact, Larry Osborne, another well-known pastor out in California, he says, whenever we turn the bulk of our attention to deciphering the obscure, we tend to miss the obvious. We could spend so much time trying to decipher this passage and everything that it means, and that's where I was headed. I was going into verb tenses, and I was going into who said this about that, and everything else that you can do with Scripture. And I realized, wait, there's, there's some things that are crystal clear in God's Word that are not difficult to translate. This, chief among them, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And so I'm not saying that Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 doesn't matter. It matters. But I'm saying we interpret it through what is crystal clear rather than interpreting everything else through it. Does that make sense? Here's a couple other crystal clear passages that I want to share with you that inform our understanding of this subject. John 10, 27 through 30 says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. This is Jesus speaking. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so when you take this and you view Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 through this, it becomes crystal clear. This is not going to happen to you accidentally. You're not going to accidentally fall out of God's hand, you're going to have to choose to leave. You're going to have to choose to jump out or walk away completely. It's not going to be something that you're wondering if you have done or not. And your conscience will likely be so seared that you're not giving any thought to this going forward. What about Romans 8, 38 through 39? I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And what comes to mind is the patriarchs and the prophets like Jonah who, who followed God and then turned away from God and then came back to God. Or Peter or other disciples or other people who turned away from God and came back because nothing could separate them from the love of God. Even the writer of Hebrews writes a crystal clear passage just a chapter or so over. In Hebrews 7.25, he says, Therefore he, and he's talking about Jesus, the great high priest, he is able to save completely, or the ESV says, to the uttermost those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. And it occurred to me 
that while all those questions are good questions to ask and they're interesting questions to try to answer and to seek out, they're the wrong question. Because if you look at this passage, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, it is clearly in a broader passage that starts in Hebrews 5.11 and goes through Hebrews 6.12. And that passage is subtitled, A Warning Against Falling Away, A Warning Against Apostasy. The writer of Hebrews is pausing his exposition of how great a high priest Jesus is to warn his audience against falling away. So what's the best question that we could ask of this text? How do I keep from falling away? Not, can I fall away? What are the conditions that would cause me to fall away? If I fall away, can I come back? And all of those other questions, they become irrelevant when we ask the right question, which is how can I keep from falling away in the first place? And that is the author's clearly stated point. It's a warning and an encouragement not to fall away, as we're going to see uh, as we continue into the broader passage. So the better question is, how can I keep from falling away? And the answer that we see in the broader passage is to make sure we go on to maturity, to not spiritually plateau, to not reach a point where we just stop progressing in our faith, but that we would always be choosing to move forward in our faith. That is how we keep from falling away. Even when the circumstances of life get rocky, we choose to move on toward maturity. The example is given at the end of chapter 5 that we move from milk, from spiritual milk, to meat. Now, there's, it's hard to beat a good cold glass of milk and a chocolate chip cookie if you can manage it. But I'm telling you, I will take the ribeye every single time. Give me the meat, right? Anybody else? I was sure that would get an amen, but I, I just see two hands going up. So maybe we're, maybe we're not carnivores in the 1030 service. But the context of the passage is, is an exhortation to go on from those elementary principles, to go on and bear fruit. And we know that this is the purpose and the intent of this broader passage, but it's also crystal clear in the verses that follow. In the verses that follow Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. It's crystal clear. Let's look and see what they say. He says, For land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. So let's look at verse 7 first. It's basically saying, okay, if you move through repentance and faith in God, you turn from your old way, you turn towards God. You become baptized. You make a public profession of your faith. You get commissioned for a specific mission field, and you start working in that mission field. You set your sights on the resurrection of the dead, and you have confidence and hope in the coming judgment. Then you're like the land in verse 7. You're, it's speaking about that type of faithfulness, that type of fruitfulness, that you drink in God's grace and you bear fruit. You bear a harvest. You produce a harvest that benefits not just yourself but the others. That receives the blessing of God. That receives the blessed assurance. And you never fear and you never doubt. And you're like, great, Pastor Mark, but what about verse 8? Verse 8 is scary, right? Like verse 8 is talking about burning land that produces thorns and thistles. If you read John 15 real carefully, you'll see Jesus talking about abiding in him and bearing, bearing fruit. And he says, if you don't, those sticks are gathered up and burned. Like this is the common destiny of people that don't bear any fruit. So my advice to you is have nothing to do with unfruitfulness. Like choose to live a life of faithfulness and fruitfulness. Bear fruit. 
Keep progressing. Keep growing in your faith. Take the circumstances and the difficulties of life and say, Jesus himself said, in this world you will have troubles, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Keep following. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. And you don't have to worry about losing your salvation. You don't have to worry because you've become so focused on fruitfulness. And there's a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture. And this is where I want to kind of wrap things up. It's in 2 Peter chapter 1. I'd encourage you to turn there. If you have one of the blue Bibles, it's page 1893. So just a handful of pages past Hebrews there. And you know what I love most about this passage? As amazing as this passage is, and we're going to get into it, and you're going to see, and you're going to be like, wow, that's a really good one. I should print that one off and put it various places and make sure I'm focused on that. But you know what I love most about 2 Peter chapter 1? Verses 3 through 12, Peter wrote it. Peter wrote it. Peter, Mr. I don't know who you're talking about three times, denied Jesus three times, walked away from him on the last day of his life. Peter wrote these words. And here's what Peter had to say, who was also restored to ministry three times by Jesus himself in John 21. He says his Jesus' divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort It's okay to work at it. It's okay to expend effort and energy in knowing God and knowing his word and knowing your place in the world and in his kingdom. Make every effort, he says, to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? Like time out there, who would like to have a little bit more faith and godliness and knowledge and self-control and brotherly kindness and love in your life? Are you making every effort to grow in those things on a regular basis? Because that's what Peter is saying we should do. It's It's not trying to figure out if we can or if we have or if we might someday lose our salvation. It's making every effort to add those things. And he says in verse 8, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where do you buy your fruit and vegetables? In the store? In the produce section, right? He's talking about how we can be productive, how we can bear fruit for God's kingdom right here in this passage. And it's just by adding these things to our lives. If anyone doesn't have him, he's nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. So don't forget. Don't lose sight of what has been done for you just because the circumstances turn or because the thing that you prayed for didn't happen. Maybe something better is on its way. Keep being faithful. Keep leaning in. Don't forget. And he concludes this passage by saying, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. You will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is a way you can be sure that you will never fall. There is a way that all the questions of Hebrews 4 through 6 become irrelevant. Focus on that. 
It's better for you. It's better for everyone around you. When your life is consistently growing in things like faith and, God, and goodness and knowledge and self-control and brotherly kindness and love, when you're, that's better for you and that's better for everyone around you. And it lines up with the fruit that we're to bear in Hebrews 6, 7. It's clear the in, clearly the intent of the author. And so our bottom line today from Hebrews chapter 6 and from 1 Peter chapter 1 is that faithfulness and fruitfulness keep us from falling away. Focus on that. Focus on the faithfulness. Focus on the fruitfulness. And that will keep you from falling away. I was trying to think, you know, Jesus was always telling these little parables and these little things that drive this into our daily life. And I was thinking about the gas gauge on my car. Like, I could sit there and fret and stew and worry about running out of gas. And yes, it's possible. If I get in my car and I start driving and I never fill it up again, if I get on I-90 and I head east, I'll run out of gas eventually, right? So I could obsess over running out of gas or I could focus on keeping my tank full. And I do this better in the winter than I do it in the summer because I don't want to run out of gas and it's cold and that's like the worst case scenario, right? So once it gets past about halfway, I fill it up. Some of you drive till that light goes off every single time, don't you? And you're like rolling the dice. You're playing the game. You're like, I know my car. I know I can make it. That needle is buried in the bottom, right? But we have these gauges on our cars. Do we have them in our spiritual lives? Have you built this into your spiritual life? Have you built a low fuel warning into your life? What are the warning signs? These might be different for each of us, but I bet there's a lot of similarities. I know in my life that the presence of anger or hatred or envy or deceit, these are warning signs for me. This is like a low fuel light. Something's wrong. Something needs to change. I need to reestablish my identity with God and reestablish who I am in Christ and reestablish my practices if they've gotten out of whack. The absence of good things is also a warning sign. It shows us that the, the fuel is getting low. Paul talked about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are things that when they start to disappear, that should be like a gauge on the dashboard of your car that's letting you know, hey, you're in trouble. My car has lots of gauges. There's one that tells me when my engine is revving too high. Do you have something or someone in your life that can help you when you're revved up a little too much? Or when your engine is overheating because you've been revved up for too long. This is called burnout. Like, there's all kinds of parallels. Do you have those in your life? Do you surround yourself with people and accountability that help you to see, man, you seem like you're on edge. Is, is everything okay? Somebody that cares enough and knows you well enough to reach out and ask that question. Or you can build these into your own life and spend five or ten minutes a day doing some self-reflection and saying, God, is there anything that I need to confess? Is there anything that's gotten... You don't have to wait until communion to do that. You can do that every day. And so I would ask you, what would make more sense if I'm really worried about running out of gas? Would it make more sense to top off my tank daily or just roll the dice and see how far I can get? Well, it would make sense, right, to top off my tank every day. Especially, imagine I have unlimited free gas in my garage. You all want to say, where's your address? I'll be by later today. 
It would make no sense whatsoever for me to leave the house on a quarter tank of gas. If I had unlimited free gas in my garage just piped in, somebody else pays the bill. Do you realize you have unlimited access to God through his word, through prayer, through the Holy Spirit, through the fellowship of believers, through worship? Find your pathway and spend some time in it every single day. One of the things I learned on my sabbaticals, I got to worship God every single day. I can't make it Wednesday to Sunday or Sunday to Sunday. I got to worship him every day. Whether that's singing out loud in the shower or that's reading a psalm in a declarative voice that Jesus Christ is Lord, walking through my house praying, I got to do that every day. I can't wait. I got to keep my tank full. You do too. And so I want to encourage you to apply this truth that faithfulness plus fruitfulness keeps us from falling away. This is what Jesus was talking about in John 15 when he talked about abiding in him. Just as a vine abides, a branch abides in the vine, we, we got to stay connected. We got to have his love and his grace and his mercy flowing through us just like the sap flows through the vine so that we can bear fruit, much fruit, fruit that will remain. And so I want to encourage you to start today. And if you're like, well, you know, I started one time and it didn't get very far, start again. Start over. Scripture is full of people that needed to start over, that needed to start again. You could be one of those. You can ask for help. You can find a friend. We, we have staff that will help connect you to a group or to personal spiritual practices or things that will help you keep your tank full. And I know I'm running out of time, but I also know it's the second service, and so you chose to come to the second service, and, and you know, like, you, you know he might go long. He'll probably go longer in the second service than he does in the first. That's okay. We'll get there. I want to illustrate something to you because it, it crossed my mind this week. It came across my mind, I should say, what I believe is my first soap journal. I talk about soap journaling a lot. Scripture, observation, application, prayer. You read the passage of Scripture. You focus on a verse. You make some observations about it. You apply that to your life, and then you make a prayer. And I think I found my first soap journal entry. It was from January, or June 26, 2009. It was on Jeremiah 17, 21. Somebody had told me about soap journaling, and I had tried it. And it was, it was good. I read it. I was like, that's, that's pretty good. That's, that's interesting. And then I flipped the page, and I found my next one. It was two weeks later, right? Anybody? You do it once. You're going to do it tomorrow, and then you're going to do it the next day, and oh, I'll get it tomorrow. And I'll get it. Well, two weeks later, July 9th, 2009, Psalm 19, 12 through 13. You want to know when my next soap journal was? As good as these two are, you want to know when my next one was? It was January 6, 2020, when I decided as a pastor that our church really should get involved in this journaling thing, spend time one-on-one -on -one with God every day in his word and engaging scripture in a powerful way. I went 11 years between my second and my third soap journal. But let me tell you, since then, this has become the number one way that I add to my faith, goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. And it cracked me up that they fit perfectly on the word of God. We've been talking about Jesus as the cornerstone. The Bible tells us Jesus is the word made flesh. This is how I do it. I haven't found a better way. And if you are not spending time in God's word every day, 
or at minimum five to seven days a week, engaging scripture, getting it into you, working it into you, then you are leaving so much joy and peace and love and goodness and kindness on the table. So I want to encourage you to start, to start over, to start again. And if you're doing this, keep doing this. And if you've been doing this for some time, find some people and get them to do it with you. And start a group. I started a new group this year. It's been one of the greatest sources of joy in my life. Because I've seen guys that really hadn't picked up a Bible for a long time start getting in the Word on a daily basis. And they're talking about 21-day streaks of reading God's Word. And, and they're filling up pages in their journal. And they're asking great questions. And they're being open and honest and transparent. And it's amazing to see the change that's coming in their life. So if you feel stuck, start. Start over. Start again. Spend some time in God's Word. Whatever it is that you're into that you love, that excites you, whether it's golf or whether it's your job or whether it's some craft or something else. You didn't know much about it when you started, but you leaned in and you kept showing up. And if you lean in and you keep showing up and you get a good study Bible and you spend time in prayer and you ask the Holy Spirit to reveal truth to you and to apply it to your lives, amazing things can happen. And if you're doing that, find somebody and do it with them. So... A final word of encouragement, and then I promise I'm done. But this is for those that might still be struggling. It's like, yeah, Pastor Mark, that's all great. But you don't know what I did. You don't know what I did after I was a part of, you don't know what I did after I knew the truth. And Satan's been beating me up with it for a long time. I want to read the words that follow. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. This is how the writer of Hebrews closes out this whole section right here. He says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help him. That sounds like faithfulness and fruitfulness. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Do you see? He ends with encouragement. He ends with confidence, not in the audience, but in God. His confidence is in God, who is not unjust. It's in God's grace. And so the English, study, English uh, Standard Version Study Bible made a tremendous point on this whole passage. And if you're still listening to this message, if you're still leaning into this message, if you're still coming to church, this speaks to you. And it says, while Christians understand these verses differently, it is wise pastoral advice to encourage a person who worries that he or she may have committed such a deep sin that the very desire to repent and be restored in fellowship with the Christian community is evidence that he or she has not fallen away in the permanent, irrevocable way described in verse 4. If you're still listening, if you're still leaning in, if you're still seeking, if you're still coming, then it's not talking about you. It's talking about somebody who the last thing on their mind is God. So be encouraged. Have hope. Choose faithfulness and fruitfulness. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word and we're grateful for your love and your grace. We're thankful for the second chances that you give each and every one of us. And we're thankful for your spirit that convicts us of sin when we've done what is wrong and leads us to repentance through your kindness. 
and your mercy. Help us to respond in faith to what we have heard. And if there is one who is still wrestling, still struggling, still saying, yeah, but, then I declare that Jesus is Lord, that the enemy has no right to cause you to doubt your salvation. If you repent, put your faith in God and choose to follow him, then you are his. May we walk in that truth. May we walk in the light that you have given us and in the freedom that comes where the spirit of the Lord is. It's in Jesus' name we pray.